0: Hi, hello, and welcome. This is the Zone Cast, where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs, and academics. And today we have with us on the show Sebastian Cooper, um, co-founder and co-CEO of Elevity. Hi, Sebastian. How are you? Welcome to the show.
1: Good. Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me
0: today. Yeah. Welcome. I'm very excited for this interview and learning more about your uh, amazing product. So, why don't we start by talking about your background? Can you? Tell us about your background. Uh,
1: sure. So, uh, I guess originally I am an engineer. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering at the uh, University of uh, Toronto uh, downtown um, some years ago, or early 2000s. Um, I worked for a number of years in uh, operations, specifically in, uh, in aerospace uh, engineering, uh, not, not too far, just in, in the suburbs. Uh, then went to grad school to do my MBA at the Richard Ivey School of Business at Western. Then went to the U.S. and was based out of Chicago working for a, uh, a multinational kind of strategy consulting company. Uh, worked a lot in uh, energy, automotive, uh, a bit of finance um, all over the world. So I had a chance to, uh, to work in Europe and Asia and South America, uh, as well as all over North America. Very interesting uh, kind of career uh, that took me about six years. And uh, when I was kind of back here... For some time, I kind of gave, came back to Toronto for a little bit. Uh, this this idea that has now led to what Elevity is uh, kind of started back in kind of twenty fourteen, and that's what made me kind of switch track a bit with my career and, and kind of focus on the entrepreneurial thing and, and focus purely on the startup. Mm-hmm. So, can
0: you tell us about
1: Elevity and how the idea came about? Sure. So, Elevity uh, is a uh, a company which is developing wearable products which uh, provides sort of unique, innovative uh, sort of audio and communication solutions. Uh, it's it's very broad, I know, but uh, the idea is that we wanted to allow people when they're doing certain activities, mainly sports and outdoor activities and things like motorcycling, we wanted them to uh, easily enjoy. Listening to music and also communicating with others in a safe but still very uh, sort of effective way. Uh, The idea first started in 2014 when uh, myself and the co-founder Bart Lipsky, we've been best friends since since high school. We've been doing all kinds of kind of activities and sports in our lives, and one of them uh, was kite surfing. And have you ever done kite surfing before? Kite surfing is amazing sport amazing activity uh, you're on the water you're basically being dragged around by a huge kite like a, a huge 13 or 15 meter kite and it has a very kind of steep learning curve and so we were sort of getting better at the sport but still very difficult and I had taken lessons when I was first learning in, in Dominican Republic and when I was taking lessons there was an instructor on the beach and he had a walkie-talkie. And he was talking to me because I had a walkie-talkie taped onto my helmet. It was a very crude sort of way for me to be able to listen to him and his instructions. But um, as you can imagine, wasn't very effective. I couldn't really hear that well. There's waves crashing on me. I'm, tr- I'm struggling to, to, to stay up. And I'm trying to understand what he's telling me. And, um, you know, we had done, done this activity. And we were catching up at a beach bar over a few beers. And almost simultaneously, we began to think, you know, what if there was some way for us to easily communicate when we're on the water, just something very light and wearable that we could use that would allow us to communicate within a range of roughly a kilometer. And, you know, and we could help each other out. We could kind of show off if we're doing different tricks and getting better. We could you know, show off to, in front of each other uh, if someone was, was in danger, like at one point, Bart's one of his lines actually snapped. He It got caught on a rock. And when that happens, you can no longer function. You can no longer use the kite. And if uh, if you have what's called offshore winds, the, the wind is actually blowing you away from land. And that's obviously not a great place to be. And luckily, I, I had known that he was there, and I told some people on the beach with a boat that, hey, my buddy is, is being dragged out to sea. And they went out and, and grabbed him, but The lesson was that if we had some way to communicate, we could, you know, always be certain that someone's aware of of the other person and uh, we would have a much safer experience. So for a number of reasons, mainly for for safety, for learning, for enjoyment, we thought easily communicating when we're doing these kinds of activities. So it started with kite surfing, but then we thought about skiing and snowboarding, which are other activities that we did, and mountain biking. Any of these sorts of activities, how, how much better the experience would be if we could just easily communicate. And, you know, a lot of communication technology has progressed. We have these really powerful smartphones, which do a lot of great things. And they're based on sort of, you know, networks, uh, 3G and 4G and so on, but nothing's been done in the realm of sort of handheld or wearable devices. The walkie talkie was invented in 1930s in, you know, World War kind of II era and, and hasn't changed much since then. So uh, that's what began the, the journey for us. We were both working full-time. Uh, I was still working full-time in consulting. Uh, Bart was working at Google here, here in Toronto. And so like many kind of startup ideas, it began just for us just exploring the idea. We built a few very kind of mock prototypes with the help of a third party here in Toronto. And we just took it to some shows. We started talking to coaches, to athletes, to other users of the sport. And obviously we began to get a sense that yeah, people are interested in something like this—a very easy, sport-oriented communication system—and um, yeah, and so that's kind of how this this whole journey started. Um, yeah, about three years ago. So it's
0: interesting—you you were kite surfing, and so there was some instructor giving you instructions, and you were wearing a helmet. Yes. So it's it's in the kite surfing you were basically surfing on water so the helmet is in case you fall and hit a rock or something
1: yeah because uh in in kite surfing you could have a situation where a wind gust comes in i've i've certainly had this where a wind comes in and it it will pick you up uh and throw you 30 meters and 30 meters 30 easily i I mean you can you can talk to some other my friends who've been there I've gotten dragged a, a few times, and so if you happen to be uh, ten meters away from, from a, a beach or a rock face or a tree, um, you know thirty feeters could put you right into a tree. And so for that reason, you do wear head protection typically when you're uh, training or you're learning the sport.
0: Mm-hmm. And this this instructor, I'm guessing he was on a boat that you were tied to, or
1: no, he was on the he was standing on a beach.
0: Oh, he was standing on the beach. Yes, oh, and okay. I'm
1: about hundred meters uh, in the water.
0: And and there is a uh, walkie-talkie which has been taped to your helmet. Yes. Like
1: taped. Taped. The, old, is, is, the old school way. It's actually uh, is actually in a in a waterproof bag, like a ziploc bag, okay. because the walkie-talkie itself wasn't waterproof, so it's in a ziploc bag, and that bag is taped next to my helmet, and I'm and I have to listen through the bag as well, which you know it's already loud and there's already waves crashing, and there's also a bag that I have to try to listen through, and so. Uh, the experience wasn't very pleasant.
0: Wow, i I'm guessing the tape must have been water resistant or something.
1: Because it had to have been some very powerful tape. Yeah, yes. that that was one thing they did well, I guess.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess they found some nice tape so that walkie-talkie doesn't fall. Yep. And, and with all the speeds and and uh, it survives the water exposure. Yes. So, so I, it's quite a neat. I, so so you experienced this and you were like, this is so inconvenient the, the walkie talkie is in is in is in a bag taped to your helmet it's very raw and and you sensed an opportunity in in trying to fix this so you came up with the Elevity product so now tell us about your product and what kind of features it has
1: sure so just to be clear Elevity is kind of the the overall kind of ber- the name of the company that's developing these different solutions the actual product, and in fact, the original name for our company, and still the namesake of the product, is uh, is Hearshot, H E A R S H O T. Hearshot. Hearshot, and that was the whole process—just coming up with a name uh, over a couple beers on on a, on a flight back back home. That's when we came up with the name. But um, so so Hearshot is that first product, which is meant to allow people within about a one-kilometer range to easily communicate with each other. And we wanted to make sure it's a great experience. You could hear really well that it's full duplex, meaning that you can talk and listen at the same time. So as opposed to a walkie talkie, which is called half duplex. You can you can only occupy the channel one at a time. So one person talks, the rest listen. We want to make sure it was very natural. Uh, that was one thing that we knew that people you know didn't like what a walkie talkie uh, does is, is, is half duplex. So that first product, uh, again, it's called Hearshot and that's actually still kind of in development. We haven't yet launched that product. Uh, it's, it's uh, as you can imagine, a very complex product. There's a lot of uh, radio frequency technology, communications, there's a lot of firmware built in there. Then there's just the mechanical design uh, of using a special transducer, batteries and so on. So, we are still in development of that product. Uh, we've had a few trials with some partners uh, to, to kind of try it out and give us feedback but we haven't yet uh, launched the, the Hearshot product. Uh, in the development of, of shot, when we realized that we had to sort of uh, literally work you know, with the helmet, because in a lot of use cases, like in kite surfing, and, and then you think of snowboarding and snowmobiling, and any of these activities, people are wearing helmets more likely. And so the original Hearshot product was actually wearable. It was actually you mounted it and it sort of sit, sat behind the, the neck. And it kind of hung on the ears. And then we realized that when you're wearing a helmet, that's extremely uncomfortable. So we were looking at ways on how to work with the helmet and we stumbled upon sort of this technology called bone conduction, which is, comes actually from, from audiology. So hearing impaired people are able to hear because they have a small transducer in the back of their skull, which transmits vibrations essentially through their, their head and it bypasses their conventional sort of ear uh, ear system. And so um, we looked at that, and we said we could apply that towards the helmet, and the helmet ends up being this sound conductor and is able to actually really effectively transmit sound because the helmet is a very rigid structure. Uh, it's made of typically very you know, stiff plastic, uh, and it's uh, concave around the, the head, and so it concentrates sound energy into the head. And so it conveniently ends up being a very good solution. And so we actually discovered that when we were developing the Hearshot product, this way of working with the helmet and using bone conduction. And we were so impressed with the sound that we said, we need to carve out a separate product altogether that just does music. Because we knew that yes, communications is one area that people are gonna want, but also the ability to easily listen to music. Because right now you have earbuds and headphones, which are very uncomfortable to wear when you're doing these kinds of sports. The Earbuds fall off, they're uncomfortable, they block the ears, so you're disconnected from your environment. There's a safety hazard. And so the beauty of this product is that it leaves the ears open. And so uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, we started developing this other product called Domeo. And Domeo is a combination of the words Dome Audio. And uh, Domeo is a product that we have now launched. We launched it in, in this past winter into the ski market, and we are now launching it into the motorcycle market. And so that's for us as a startup, sort of a, where we're putting a lot of focus because it's now revenue generating, it's profitable, it's building our brand name, and it's obviously paying some of the bills now. And we continue to develop Hearshot in, in the background.
0: So the, your product uh, Hearshot or Domeo, do they have like built-in speakers like, like a computer or any phone? Or, or do you have like a sp- special bone induction-based hearing?
1: Yeah, uh, so the actual component is called a, uh, el- el- sorry, an electromechanical transducer. Uh, basically, it's similar to what a speaker is. Um, you apply electric current and it creates a vibration. The difference is that it's designed to create sound and transmit sound through solids as opposed to speakers, which are designed to create sound through air.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Sound can travel very effectively through solids. And uh, with using this special transducer, you can actually transmit sound quite quite effectively uh, in, in full in the full sort of range of sound as well. So you get really good low bass notes. You get very high, ba- high uh, uh, frequency notes. It, it's actually... Really effective, and so the transducer is this particular component that is designed to send the uh, sound energy through through solids, and in, in this case, a plastic uh, shell helmet. So
0: you're using this transducer rather than uh, rather than a regular speaker because because there is already so much noise in the environment. So you want the regular ear to be available for that regular sound. And then any additional communication that's happening through the helmet, you want the, that to go through the bone induction process.
1: Yeah, it, it, yeah, we do want, exactly, one of the big benefits is that uh, the values, the value proposition that we provide is that, uh, yeah, the user is still very much aware of their surroundings. Because in all these cases, uh, the user does not, we don't want the user to be disconnected from the environment. If you're yeah. kite surfing, if you're mountain biking, you're skiing, you need to be aware of who and what is around you. Yeah. and by having something plugging your ears you are reducing your ability to, to to be aware and so uh so that's the beauty of it that you're still able to listen and hear really well but your ears are still open so you're still intaking sort of the environment uh, as well
0: interesting and i um, for this bo- bone induction hearing do you have to like if i'm wearing your helmet does it have to be like a very specific fit so i'm able to have that like uh, have the something right under my ear or or is there like some kind of flexibility
1: Uh, so it's designed to work with the existing helmet that you already have because it sits purely on the outside of the helmet so it doesn't at all fit on the inside there's nothing so that that's the beauty of it that the user and helmets are very personal thing people you know it's very sort of a stylistic people like certain styles and colors of their helmets and B, it fits, like especially after a while, a helmet really begins to fit around your, your head. And so uh, the beauty of it is that you continue to use your helmet and you simply apply this device on, on the outside of it. And, so, uh, and it works on any sort of a kind of solid shell helmet. So most helmets you can think of. The one helmet that we don't recommend uh, is a cycling, very light sort of cycling helmet that has a lot of vents. Uh, there's just simply... There's not enough sound that's able to be retained and transmitted within the helmet. It just kind of escapes. And so that's the one uh, type of helmet we don't recommend using Domeo with.
0: Mm -hmm. So so you're not selling helmets. You're selling something that attaches to a helmet.
1: That's correct, yeah. So it's
0: it's like an add-on to, like if I have, let's say, a hockey helmet or a motorcycle helmet or any other helmet, skiing helmet, uh, any kind of water sports helmet. I'll just attach your device to my helmet rather than buy a brand new helmet from you.
1: That's right. Yeah, exactly. We're, so, we're selling an accessory to, to that helmet. Uh, you know, we like to sort of call this a helmet wearable. Almost a, it's a new category altogether. Uh, I mean, you know, things like a GoPro have been around for many, many years. And the, the GoPro is, is essentially a helmet wearable product. It means something that you mount to the outside of, uh, of your helmet. And, and the beauty of our product, uh, you know, to your point, is that you can have multiple helmets, and you just need one of these products—one of one, one Domio—and all you need is a, is a special mount. The the mount comes with double-sided tape. It's applied to the helmet, and it stays on the helmet at all times. So if you have four helmets—motorcycle, snow, uh, kite surfing, whatever—you just need four mounts. And whenever you're doing that, each activity, you simply take the Domio and and apply and install it onto that mount onto that helmet, and, and away you go. Oh,
0: okay. Okay. Interesting. And um, how long did it take for you to develop this product?
1: Um, the Domeo product and you know, what you see now is, you know, our sort of our first product that we launched. But internally, it's, it's our Gen 4, it's our, it's our fourth generation product. So we actually spent all together um, about a year and a half, maybe just shy of two years, to go through four major iterations of, uh, of the product. Those first three products luckily never saw the light of day. Um, it's only this last one that we finally launched. We were happy enough uh, you know, using it and, and kind of socializing it with others and, and showing people what it's like that we were happy enough that we said, this is what we're gonna be launching with, we're ready. But uh, yeah, it took almost two years to go through four generations of product.
0: So the fourth generation is is the one you're selling. Yes, is is the one you're selling. The two years, mm-hmm. so that is a lot of research and development and uh, time, and especially when you're in a pre-revenue stage, it's uh, it's it's pretty hard to survive. That so did you have any kind of like investors supporting you and backing you?
1: Yeah, l- luckily we did. Otherwise, uh, yeah, we, we probably wouldn't be here. So we did raise initial seed round um, in in twenty. 20- Fifteen with a number of investors, sort of mainly kind of associates, friends, acquaintances, uh, uh, you know that nature, and we did raise, and that was really on on the HearShot product, the original communication. That's all we had at that time, and so the Domio came after that. Um, but back in twenty fifteen, we did raise a, a seed round that, uh, and we also did a um, a convertible note round as well, about a year later. Uh, and so both of those have sustained us basically up to the point of, of revenue. Now that we're earning revenues, it's obviously very very helpful. But uh, that's what allowed us to, yeah, to get to where we are.
0: Interesting. So, uh, raising money in a pre-revenue stage is always a challenge. Hmm. Because as you know, investors are typically valuing company based on uh, a multiple of sales Yes. but when you're in a pre-revenue stage you don't have any sales so there's no multiple of sales right so how did you and the investors agree on the valuation
1: hmm. um, yeah I mean that that's an entire entire process um, so you know raising raising funds especially at that early stage is always very difficult I'd say it's even more difficult than anyone that's that's done hardware knows it's, you know, as difficult as it can be in general as as a startup. uh, It's far more difficult with hardware because hardware has its own unique challenges. Uh, There's a lot of upfront costs required before you see even a dollar of revenue. You have to invest a lot of money into things like development, R&D, tooling, inventory. uh, And and then after you invest all that money, you know, months later, do you hopefully begin seeing some return on that investment? you start seeing some, some revenues come in? So hardware is particularly challenging. Um, And so when we were going around uh, kind of fundraising, uh, I'd say the things that really helped us and to support the valuation that we were asking for is for sure some of the work that we've already done. We had, you know, what's called like a minimum, minimum viable product that was able to demonstrate the technology and show people, yep, you can do this, you can have something that's that's wearable in the helmet that allows communication with uh, with others it wasn't yet perfect it wasn't yet commercializable but it very effectively demonstrated the technology so one was just on sort of the minimum viable product or sometimes an earlier version is called a proof of concept um second i'd say was on just you know ourselves the team you know is myself and bart and we both have you know very diverse backgrounds across engineering marketing sales operations and so you know that's probably the second biggest thing that 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 helps us um, you know in convincing investors that you know we can we can carry this out and then third is probably the overall market opportunity and to show that you know there's millions of people out there that enjoy these kinds of sports uh, from mountain biking to skiing to kite surfing and, and motorcycling and so on and you know, and the market is this big, and uh, and we you know are out to capture this portion of the market. And, and so, yes, we don't have revenues yet, but uh, you know, five years from now, we you know feasibly could could be this kind of size company, let's you know five or ten million dollar company. And, and so, we begin to kind of establish um, based on those kind of factors what we think is a reasonable valuation. Uh, there is no art to it. I uh, actually, actually sorry, no no science to it. Um, it really is boils down to you know um, those discussions with the investors. Uh, you could look at sort of other companies that have also been at our stage, and so there's you know what's called comparables. You could see what other startups what they were able to raise at what valuation, you know, based on the stage that they were at. Um, but uh, really, it was very much um, you know we felt it was this valuation. We got some pushback. And we had to make some adjustments. In some cases, but uh, for the most part, all our investors, sort of, and most importantly us as well, we all agreed on on a, a reasonable valuation at the beginning, and that's always the toughest because you you don't have any easily you know numbers like revenues and multiples of revenues or earnings that you could use, mm-hmm. which are you know very well established.
0: Yeah. Are you able to share the valuation on which the seed funding was raised?
1: Yeah, uh, so that seed round was a uh, valuation of about uh, 2.5 uh, million uh, on a post-money, so meaning after the the money from the funds from the actual seed round. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, so it's 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 great that you were able to get that kind of valuation in a pre-revenue stage, mm-hmm. um, because with Canadian investors, it's typically about multiples and it's not always the best even even let's say if you were in your first year of business and you had some sales let's say you only did like ten thousand a few thousand dollars in sales in the first 12 months that should not be a basis of a multiple because it may not represent the actual potential yes of the product to deliver future sales Um, it is I guess a tried and tested method of uh, valuing companies investors love that metric of uh, multiple of sales, but I feel like when you're looking at new ventures, uh, even if they have some sales, it may not be the right number to use as a multiple.
1: Yeah, and one key word that you mentioned there is, is, I think, uh, Canadian. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, I did mention that. Uh, and, um, but I'm not saying it's
0: exclusive to Canadian, it, but it's, yes. Yeah, but it's,
1: it's not exclusive, but but there's no doubt. Um, and, you know, we know this because we've had identical discussions with Canadian investors as we did with uh, U.S. or even overseas investors out of Asia. And the conversation is very different. Uh, I think, uh, yes, in, in, in Canada, especially with hardware, um, sort of the default is yes, exactly. Let's look at multiples of, of sales. Let's look at you know your reoccurring revenues. We want to see what kind of subscription model you can develop out of this. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very scripted sort of approach, uh, I think, um, and that's not great because uh, you know er, you know there's so many different ways to, sk- to skin the cat, I think, um, and in, in U.S. especially, you know, it was far more about yeah. You you guys, have a, a great idea here. Um, this is definitely something people want. Uh, I totally s- see the the issue, and this is a great solution. And I believe in you guys. And you know, it, it's it is much more based on, on that kind of you know, more of a relationship. Uh, whereas, yeah, in Canada, it's typically the conversations are more in, around the numbers and, and, and the, the model, the financial model. Like, let's see your projections, and, yeah. Yeah. That's always a fun exercise because you know, I worked <laughs> I worked in consulting for, for six years so I know exactly how to put you know uh, projections together and and very fancy financial models and we could do that all day uh, for for investors but that's not the point that's not what we're here for we're not here to put together really nice models you know we're here to build a business and when the early conversations go you know always are all centered on, around you know what your sales are what your projections are. Sometimes you know you don't find agreements, and um, yeah, that's what we found with some of our early discussions, and even in our our, some of our more recent ones. Even as a more mature startup, we're still a startup, but you know far more mature than we were three years ago. Let's say.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Can you can you talk about your validation? You mentioned this great story that you were doing some water skiing, and this this. uh, this taped helmet and walkie-talkie system, which was uh, half duplex, yes. ha- half duplex, mm-hmm. one way, no two way communication, mm-hmm. and then so you, so you had this idea. Okay, there there has to be a better way than taping a walkie-talkie to a helmet. Yes. Um. And and you came up with the solution. Um. But when you had this idea in your mind, um, how did you become convinced that okay, this is the idea? Which uh, which the market needs. Were you convinced when when you got off that uh, that uh, trip that that uh, ride, or was there more conversations and more research after that?
1: I think uh, conceptually, I think we, we started on on the right foot. Like we just knew that uh, we just knew that there was something that can be done that that effect effectively would allow just easy communication we didn't know exactly what it was going to look like um if it was you know again originally it was a wearable device that you don't mount on a, on a helmet um we you know we didn't know if there were going to be buttons or what buttons were going to be on it so we didn't know what technology i mean i have a mechanical engineering background uh, not even in kind of electrical which is a bit more relevant in this field so you know it's not like i was an expert specifically in, in, in rf technology um so we knew conceptually what it should do and what, because we are users ourselves, you know, this this was very organic for us, where, you know, sometimes products and so on are designed, you know, around input from others. There's focus groups put together and user studies that are done and so on. We knew very confidently because we were users. We, we did all these activities and we firsthand experienced sort of the, the pain points. And so, yeah, conceptually, I'd say we, we had a very good idea and that's kind of, you know, stuck. That, that hasn't changed much um, since, since the beginning. In terms of how it manifests in terms of the the product and, and what technologies and, you know, whether it was wearable or hella mounted, none of that was, was figured out. And that's what the entire process was about. And that's one of the most important kind of jobs of a startup. It's not to... It's not to make millions or to raise millions. It's really about figuring out what uh, that product, what that solution looks like, and, and how well it meets the needs of, uh, of the users. And that's what we spent a lot of time on. And we made a lot of pivots. I mean, uh, and that's 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 what you do. You realize, wow, we've been focusing on, you know, on this wearable product, and we spent a lot of time on, on making sure it fits good, and it looks good, and, and the right materials, but in fact, in the end, our main product is not wearable at all, in a sense, it's not worn on the body. It's actually mounted to a helmet. And so it is pretty cool when you look back, all the major pivots you make and, and how, you know, when you get down to the actual product, it's very different than when you first maybe imagined it, when you first started. But again, conceptually, the idea is still there. I mean, in terms of what the, the product does, it's very much exactly what we thought. You know, when we first thought about the problem, what, 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 what a solution should look like.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Where do you make your product?
1: So we, uh, we do a bit of a, a hybrid. So we make a lot of the bare uh, uh, sort of components. We either procure or, uh, or we make the plastics in uh, overseas, mainly in, in China. Uh, not surprisingly, there's a, you know, obviously there's cost advantages, but there's an, an, an entire supply chain. That's very well established to serve sort of the needs of hardware companies. So uh, a lot of our our plastics and components we source from China, and we bring everything here to uh, to our contract manufacturing partner, which is actually based in, in Markham, just outside Toronto, and uh, we do all the the sub assemblies and the final sort of box build assembly and test in uh, in Markham. So uh, it, it is very much a made in Canada product, uh, but of course we source uh, components from overseas. Mm-hmm. So
0: making a, uh, making it in Canada, it must uh, have a cost disadvantage uh, over making it in China.
1: There is a there's certainly a cost uh, disadvantage. Uh, I mean, either, only because there's a fair amount of. Uh, touch time with our product. There's a fair amount of labor. There's very sort of small, intricate components that have to be fit together. Um, And you know, when we're at the stage that we are, uh, you know, we're only making thousands at a time. Um, It's, we're not investing in assembly lines and automation. And when you're at that stage, uh, there is still a lot of manual uh, work that needs to be done. And so that's where we are for sure at a disadvantage for obvious reasons, labor costs are, are far lower in places like China. Um, so yes, th- so there is on a per unit basis, uh, at this point, a cost disadvantage, but there is a huge advantage in being able to do this in our backyard because the amount of things that we learn um, about the product, about how to make it, about improvements that can be made. I mean, when we did our first production batch in January, we, you know, our whole team was there set up with our contract, with our contract manufacturing partner And we were changing things on the fly because we realized certain things, you know, after making 15 products or or 20 or 100, certain things are starting to go wrong. You realize during testing and inspection. And we're able to make those changes and make those decisions uh, on the fly. And I I couldn't imagine uh, if we were to do this for the first time in in a place like China. I mean, we would have to be there. I I would certainly have to be there supervising everything. And of course, there's going to be all kinds of barriers like language barriers and so on and, you know, talking to a supervisor and, and, and so on. So uh, having that transparency and control early on in the process is uh, is really priceless. And that far outweighs the, the cost disadvantage on a, on a per unit basis. Because when we start building the 10,000, the 50,000 unit batches, which likely more than likely will happen overseas at some point, we've learned everything there is to know. We, we know the ins and outs of the process and we can hand over at that point a, a very tested method uh, of how to put this together, and what things to look out for, and, and so on. So, um, and, and I mean, there, there's obviously other you know advantages, uh, you know, besides besides that. I mean, just the fact that it's made you know made here in Canada speaks a lot to a lot of our, our marketplace. Uh, a lot of users, you know, are, are skiers and snowboarders and motorcyclists, and and uh, you know, something like made in Canada um, is usually quite surprising to, to some of them but also I think seen as uh, as, as interesting and, and kind of uh, of some value because it is made domestically so um, yeah so we, uh, we will continue for the, the time being to, to make our product uh, here in Canada.
0: I guess it's a good good idea to manufacture here and, and learn how to improve the product and have, uh, have the ability to visit the factory whenever you, you want. And see the process in place and and as you mentioned once you manufacture in those large quantities you can uh, outsource it and you have learned everything about how to fine-tune and improve the product but uh, what were some of the imperfections that you found in your uh, when you were first (laughs) uh, producing it here
1: yeah I I mean uh, I don't know how much uh, time time we have but I don't know how specific I want to get either, but
0: uh, <laughs> I knew it was a spicy question. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, in one general sense, we, we were really rushed because it took us, uh, you know, which is not uncommon with hardware, it took us longer than we originally anticipated. We wanted to launch the product uh, in the beginning of the winter season, which typically is like September, October is when you want to get products into the market because that's when the buying starts. That's when people start buying product for for the winter ski market. And that was our original intention, you know, a year ago. Um, But things took longer than expected and, you know, through the design and there's a whole validation process. Once you're done design, you have to obviously build, you know, some very basic prototypes using 3D printing or CNC machining, make sure everything looks good and fits well. And then there's sourcing of components. So we have about 15, uh, almost 20 different suppliers, and we don't have a very, you know, overly complex product. But we have over 20 suppliers of all kinds of materials and glues and adhesives, and everything has to work really well. And you know, it works what can work well in the in the laboratory setting when we're doing sort of this prototype build, sometimes works very differently in in the factory setting. And because you know we end up being a bit rushed. We didn't have as much time to do some of the, you know, when we bring in the first plastic parts, you want to do uh, obviously things like interference checks to see that the plastics are fitting well and there's no uh, overlap and and there's no uh, interference between mating components, things like that. And usually you have the time and, you know, if there's issues after you get the first 10 parts, you go back to the, your supplier in China, you say, Hey, you know, this is off by 0.3 millimeters. You need to we need to adjust it or shave off a bit of that. And uh, we didn't have the opportunity to do that because of timing. We had to get the product into the market as soon as possible. Because if we miss the ski season, our product's very seasonal. That's it. We have to wait a whole nother year before we can sort of start realizing, you know, the revenues and seeing the product in market. So we had to do whatever it takes. And so uh, a lot of things sort of, you know, didn't fit perfectly. And so we had to take tools and and things like, you know, Dremels, for example, and start shaving down components and shaving down plastic wall. And this wasn't on every component, but one out of every five. And that's the way, you know, things work. They're usually normally distributed. And so at those tail ends, when you took two parts, they happened to be one's a bit too big, one's a bit too small. You put it together, it doesn't fit. And now you have to start either mixing and matching or making some adjustments. And so there was a lot of that manual sort of rework to make things, uh, you know, uh, fit properly. Uh, so that's some of the things that, you know, we had to very quickly uh, adjust and, and uh, work on, sort of in a very real-time setting on the production floor.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have any kind of uh, patterns on your product?
1: We do, so we have filed for patents um, for the, the overall product as well as sort of the technology that, you know, we've we've we spent a lot of time in tuning the, uh, the actual transducer and the whole, what's called the audio chain, uh, that produces sound. You know, we tune that to work well with plastic helmets. And uh, there's a bit of stuff that we've done, uh, and that's, you know, a lot of that we've, we've patented. Um, so it's currently sort of working its way through the system, uh, currently with both uh, kind of U.S. and, and Canadian patent systems. Uh, it takes usually... A good two years, to, you know, sometimes up to three years before everything's finalized. But uh, yeah, we have uh, we have patents kind of in the system to uh, protect the product and, and the technology.
0: Any <coughs> competitors?
1: Uh, so for the okay, so for the Domio products, uh, there's no sort of uh, competitors, you know, doing exactly what we're doing. That there are a few other products that people can use if they want to listen to sound, and obviously we think they. Are not as not as great as Howard products. Uh, so there are products, for example, that slip inside the the, the, the side of a helmet, inside the pocket. Usually there's some kind of a opening. And so they're very thin, thin round speakers that someone can put inside. We don't think that's a great solution because it still kind of blocks the ears. And you have a, a, a very hard metal and plastic product right next to your ear. And so if you were to fall on the side of your head and, and let's say hit a, hit a rock or something, you know, you don't want that kind of Right beside a, an opening in, in, in your head, filled with batteries, and chemicals, and all that stuff. Uh. So, so that there are you know those products, and of course, there's all kinds of nice earbuds. You know, uh, companies like Skullcandy are well known, and they make sport-oriented sort of earbuds that are meant not to fall off and are sweat-resistant. So we see them as sort of a broad category of, of competitors that provide other ways for people to, let's say, enjoy music. Uh, so yeah, so so there are a few in, in HearShot again, the communication device. Um, there aren't really any uh, close competitors. There's a few others that are doing things. Obviously, it's walkie-talkies in general, which you know aren't really great for this kind of use case. There's a few others that do things like Bluetooth communications. We don't use Bluetooth; we use something else, which works a lot better in, in outdoor environments. Um, and so, yeah. So, in some ways, there there are a few existing products, and competition is 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 not bad at all. Uh, sometimes the biggest hurdle is simply educating the consumer, and that can, that can run the company out of money. Just the amount of time and effort needed to educate the consumer on what this is. And, and sometimes people don't even know what the issue is. And you have to kind of spell it out. And, and then they realize, yeah, you're right. Actually, they're, they're, you know, I never thought that this might be an issue. But yes, there is a better way, let's say, to communicate or listen to music. And so without competitors, um, sometimes it, you can you can spend a lot of money simply educating people uh, about about an idea. And so sometimes competitors kind of help to elevate the entire market um, and they, they make the education process a lot, a lot easier.
0: Interesting. So where do you currently sell your product and what's your uh, plan for the next few years?
1: So the Domeo product, we, we have uh, about 30 retailers uh, right now, mainly in the ski market. And it's, it's April right now. And so the ski market is now you know, kind of coming to an end. But uh, for the last few months, we had about thirty retailers across the U.S. and Canada. So mainly, mainly specialty shops, uh, sort of everything from mom and pop stores to uh, chains of about maybe uh, ten stores, uh, carrying the product uh, across, you know, across the U.S. and Canada. Um, and we also sell online directly on our own website to individual uh, consumers. Uh, so that's kind of uh, right now because we're now. We've pivoted now towards the motorcycle market. Now, given kind of the weather, uh, we've changed up a lot of things, like on our site. We still continue to obviously sell to individual customers. Um, and we're now sort of bringing on board uh, motorcycle dealerships and motorcycle shops that will be selling the product um, throughout the year. Uh, we also go to a number of consumer shows. So we were actually this past weekend at the, uh, the Motorcycle Spring Show, uh, which is, was at the International Center. And uh, there's maybe five to 10,000 people there over two days. And that was a great event for us because you get to be right in front of the customer and see kind of how they react. And, and obviously, we sell units, which is great. Um, but more importantly, we get a lot of good feedback from, from, from people. And we see what they like about the product. We see what they wish the product had. And uh, so we do a lot of these consumer shows. We do quite a few uh, during the year. And, then, and again, that's, that's a good, good place for us to, to be as well. Uh, going forward, we, um, you know, five years from now, who, who knows what can what can happen? But we want to continue to kind of uh, expand uh, in in kind of the our for sure in our retail or physical retail presence. Continue to work with some of these specialty stores. Um, I don't think we'll ever want to be in some of these big box stores. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. But um, I think a lot of people think that being in like a Best Buy or, or a Target is kind of the the ultimate success but uh we've you know we've come across a lot of companies that have had a lot of difficulties when they sell it to these you know big stores a lot of conditions uh, come with uh kind of sales and then sometimes even collecting uh revenues sometimes difficult so um, we uh, really want to focus on continuing to work with some of these more specialized stores and retailers they help to tell the story really well the, our product needs what's called an assisted sale. I mean, you have to have somebody there to help the person to try it out. It's You know, we, we've built sort of displays that allow people to try it out for themselves. But it is one of those things, It's because it's very new and it's very experiential, people really do need to, to try it. And so having a sales associate there to educate the consumer is, is critical for our success. And that's very hard to do in, in a place like a, a Target or, or a Best Buy. Mm-hmm. So we continue to, I think, expand in the specialty. Uh, Geographically, we have for sure expand. We've already had customers buying from Europe and Asia. We've had a lot of interest from retailers and distributors in those regions. And and obviously, there's skiers and motorcyclists all over the world, right? So I think we'll be very busy simply uh, expanding geographically uh, in terms of uh, retail. And online remains critical for us um, because it is a great way to sell the product. Margins are higher. We have... uh, very close relationship with the customers. We know who the customers are, and so both our site and perhaps you know we can sell through third-party sellers like perhaps Amazon as well. Is something we can we will consider as well going forward.
0: Do do your retailers become unhappy when they find out that you're also directly selling the product to the end customer?
1: Uh, no, that's the reality we live in now. Uh, that's an absolute expectation that uh, that the product will also be sold online. Some of these retailers themselves have online sites. And so um, they also don't mind when people uh, buy online. Obviously, their site, not ours. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, there's just uh, no way many companies uh, you know, that are on the innovative cutting edge like, like we are you know, for audio communications. I think the, unless you're selling maybe like shoelaces or something, um, you know, maybe people have different expectations. But certainly if you're in tech and you're developing consumer wearables, Sure, having online is an expectation. The one thing is that you're not undercutting, so you know that that's an agreement we have across the board. We all have what's called MAP, um, and that basically assures that everyone is selling sort of at the same price. And so, you know, we have the same retail price in our stores as we do uh, online. It it wouldn't be fair if we were to all of a sudden reduce our prices by 50% or have a you know spring sale 25% off. Without in coordination, at least informing and then allowing everybody to do that. So as long as everyone's on the same playing field, the retailers have absolutely no 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 problem at all. It only helps to you know, we're a small company, right? and so it only helps to elevate the brand. And uh, if everyone's doing their part, retailers are doing their part, we're doing ours online. So a customer walks into a store. Oh, I saw this online actually. I saw a yeah, Facebook yeah, ad. Yeah, yeah. And this is cool. And now get to see it. And they try it and maybe they buy the store, but maybe they first discovered it, you know, through one of our Facebook ads. And so the idea is that it's a win-win for, for everybody in in that, in that sense.
0: Okay. Interesting. Well, Sebastian, it has been very nice uh, speaking with you and learning about you and your, and your uh, amazing product. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and sharing your journey with us.
1: Okay, great. Thanks. It's been fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, welcome. Uh, For the listeners, if you would like to learn more about uh, Elevity and and the amazing products that Sebastian has to offer, please visit their website, elevity.com. And uh, thank you very much for listening to Zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes.